And if you could find a Bible, find a Bible, please, and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 4. So Friday, last Friday, was the 12th, the last of 12 days of Christmas, the 12th day of Christmas, and I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas season this year. This morning, in, in many traditions, um, is counted as Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany is the last day of Christmas tide, and um, oftentimes if that falls in the week prior, then the following Sunday gets to be, to be the last day. Sunday of Christmas. So we get a little extra Christmas this year. And I, um, we just took down our decorations yesterday. And of course, there's no tree here this morning either. But, uh, and if you have yours up into February, I am not judging. Um, I would totally do that. Uh, my wife and I, that's one of our larger marriage disagreements is how long the Christmas ornaments get us stay up. Um, I would probably have a pine tree in my living room throughout the year if I was allowed. But I, I know I'm weird. Um, <laughs> Uh, so because, because this is, was that a, no, you're not weird? You're not weird, Matt. Or was that a knowing, you weird? Oh. Um, and so, so because, because we, I love you too. Because we, because we get an extra Sunday of Christmas um, and because we wanted to wait one more week to start our next series into Revelation until uh, all the students could be back, uh, this this is going to be the one last Sunday with a little Christmas flavor, even though the trees are no longer up in here. And my sermon this morning, it's, going to, it's title, uh, The Prince of Peace, comes from that same Isaiah 9-6 prophecy that I started with uh, on Christmas morning, where, uh, where Isaiah declares the coming child unto you. A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called... Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and then Prince of Peace. And this week, we're going to discuss how Christ promises to bring us peace through prayer. Christ promises us peace through prayer. And I think that this can feel hard to believe sometimes in our lives. But as we look at Christ's example this morning, we're going to find encouragement, I hope. We'll find encouragement and grace and the strength we need as we strive for peace in our souls. So let's read Philippians chapter 4, this classic, familiar passage for many of you. If you've been around the church any length of time, Philippians 4 will sound familiar to you. I'm going to read in the CSB version this morning in anticipation of next week. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me 
and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. So I'm going to look at this passage. Let's take a look at just what are the commands that Paul gives us here. That Paul commanded the Philippians, the Philippian church and also so down through the ages to us. What are the commands he gives us? First he says, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command in the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in him. Note the, the object of our rejoicing. Find your joy in him, Paul says. In other words, don't look for it anywhere else. Find your joy, rejoice in him, in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Next he says, don't worry about anything. And Brad gave an excellent message this last month on worry and how to combat worry. And I'm not going to spend much more time on this because Brad covered that so well. I'd, I'd, rec- I'd recommend if you didn't get to hear it that you go back to our website and you listen or, or watch that sermon on how, in a sense, how not to worry. How we can fight, battle against, how we can resist the temptation to worry. But what does he, do to, what does he say to do instead? And, and like, like all good instructors, uh, and especially under the inspiration of the creator who knows us, he knows that we, just telling somebody, stop it, is not very helpful. Stop it. Thanks. That's helpful. Well, do you want, you know, does, does doing this hurt your arm? Stop doing that. But what he knows instead is, rather than just saying, stop it, what we need is to replace it. We, sometimes just stopping something is not helpful. But if we replace, then we have some, we have some hope. We have some power. So what does he say? Instead of worrying, present your requests to God. And if you remember, Brad spent a little bit of time defining worry. We get hung up in worry. I'm going to take a little crack at defining worry as just circling around the same problem over and over in your mind. The image of the verb worry is a dog on a bone. Just... That's what the word worry literally means. What that dog is doing to that bone is he is worrying that bone. Over and over, just constantly chewing on it until eventually it dissolves. That's what, that's what worrying is. Don't do that. Instead, replace that with when you find yourself worrying that bone, because we will do it. Instead, what? Wait, I'm, oh, I'm just, for the last hour and a half, I've just been circling around this conversation in my head. What should I do instead? This is not productive. I should instead, what? Present my request to God. Lord, help! <laughs> Could you come into this conversation that's spinning around in my head? Present your requests to God. Then what else does he say? Dwell on instead of dwelling on that bone that you're chewing on until it dissolves. Instead of worrying, dwelling on the worrying. Dwell on what? On these kinds of things. Anything that is honorable. Anything that is just. Anything that is pure. Anything that is lovely. Anything that is commendable. Anything that is virtuous. It's a moral excellence. Anything that is virtuous. Anything that is praiseworthy. He's, he's telling us practice consciously finding and thinking about those kinds of things. 
it's really interesting. The command here is when you find yourself worrying over something and you're stuck in this worry loop, he says, redirect your thinking. And, and, and to be honest, I find that a little strange. Like, well, shouldn't we deal with the thing we're worrying about? He actually doesn't say to do that. He says, redirect your thinking. And he says, bring God into the picture and thank him for the things that you have to be thankful for. What's the antidote to worry and peace? Redirect your thinking. Bring God into the picture with thankfulness for the things that you have to be thankful for. Dwell on these kinds of things to the exclusion of other things. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in this other thing or try to look for your joy in this other thing. Most often, by the way, trying to look for our joy in the thing we're worried about not happening or happen, the thing, finding our joy by the thing we're afraid of happening this is going to be compl complicated. We're going to try to find our joy. We're going to rejoice that this thing we're afraid of doesn't happen. That's the thing where I will rejoice when this thing doesn't happen, this thing I'm afraid of. Or I will rejoice when this thing I'm worried will not happen. When that happens, I'll find my joy there. Instead, what does he say to do? Replace, redirect your source of joy where you are looking for joy to the Lord. Replace your worry with prayer and dwelling on prayer in thankfulness and dwelling on whatever is pure and lovely and commendable and virtuous and praiseworthy. And in a minute, I'm going to tell you why I'm not suggesting you just stuff down the thing you're worried about and don't deal with it. I'm not suggesting that. It might sound like it because Paul sounds like it for a minute here. Unless you know the context, and I'm broaden the scope and find the context, and in that context, you'll see he's not saying, avoid your problems, or don't deal with your issues. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is the way you deal with your issues is this. Those are the commands. Oh, one final command. This is interesting. One final command. Do what you have learned from the Scriptures obey the scriptures and i'm saying the scriptures he says what you've learned from me well how do we know what we learned from paul well he wrote it down in the scriptures do what you have learned from the scriptures obey the scriptures so we have rejoice in the lord don't worry about anything but instead present your request to god and everything with thanksgiving and prayer and petition and ask him for help and all of that dwell on good and lovely and honorable and holy things and do the things you know to do from the Scriptures. You want an antidote to worry. You want a recipe for peace. There it is. There it is. And he promises. Here's how I know it's an antidote and a recipe. By the way, I'm not one of those preachers. If you're new here, I'm not one of those preachers. There's just four simple steps to a happy marriage. Or four simple steps to successful parenting. I don't have those for you. I do have a recipe for peace. And here's how I know. Because there's not just commands in this passage. There are promises in this passage. There are promises here. What are the promises? Well, they're going to be highlighted in green up on the screen. Promise number one, the Lord is near. Jesus promised to be with his people 
to the end of the age. It's yellow. That's green. Never mind. The Lord is near. Just, just think about that for a second. Paul says, Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. Why? The Lord is near. He's right here with you. Believers in Christ, He's sealed inside of you. He's not leaving. For those of you who are not believers in Christ, He is not far from any one of you. Paul promises and acts, and He wants you to reach out and find Him that you may perhaps know Him. The Lord is near. Promise number two. If you do these things, these commands, if you rejoice in the Lord, if you don't worry about anything but instead present those things to God, if you, if you spend your time dwelling not on the thing you're worried about, but if you spend your time dwelling on whatever is pure and lovely and commendable and virtuous and holy, and if you do what you know from the Scriptures, if you obey the Scriptures, the promise is the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And there's a third promise that the God of peace will be with you. That's a pretty sweet promise. The Prince of Peace will be with you. Three promises. Interestingly, the Lord is near. The peace of God will guard your heart. And the God of peace will continue, I think. That's why it says he is near. He will continue to be near. He will be with you and bring you that peace. I think it's important to bring up the context of this passage. I skipped it on purpose just for the construction of the sermon, but you know. Look at the context for a sec. Back up to verse 2. Why does Paul, in what context does Paul issue this command? Rejoice, pray, dwell on lovely things. Remember what you've received from me. Do those things. Well, what's going on in the Philippian church that Paul needs to write these things? Look at verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. 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 You decide. It's a dead language. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, I think it's a third name, by the way, I ask you, Syzygus, calls him out, Syzygus, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. These women have contended the gospel, for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So here's the context. I urge Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, also you, Syzygus, help them. There is relational strife among fellow ministers in the church in Philippi. They had some sort of disagreement, some sort of fractured relationship. And it was important enough that Paul had to write them a letter. He had to call them out in front of the church. I urge the two of you who have this irreconcilable disagreement, reconcile. Can you imagine, I'm, I'm trying to even think, think of who this might be. Some of us who, who all of us in this room respected. A few years ago, I could have said a few names, and all of us in this room would have known the name. And, and, 
But can you imagine for a second, there's somebody, think of somebody who you respect spiritually, who we all respect as a church spiritually, and he comes to the stage, he's got a message for you. Um, you and you, you need to agree. I was intentionally pointing at the back wall, by the way. <laughs> you and you. You need to agree, and you help them. That would be, whoa, we'd all go, whoa, what? <laughs> Into this context of relational fracture, disagreement, people who needed help, who were unable to reconcile this relationship. They needed this specific exhortation and encouragement from Paul. I wonder if they needed it because this peace that they are seeking can feel so elusive, especially in the middle of strife or suffering. This peace from God. And I just want to like, think, think, take an inventory real quick. This is difficult to do. Take an inventory of your heart right now. Are you at peace in this context on Sunday morning? Or is there something going on, some fractured relationship, some strife, some disagreement that is causing you to be not at ease here? And I wonder if this peace from God, this joy of fellowship, this sense of, oh good, it's Sunday morning again and I get to go sit with my brothers and sisters in the church and hear the word of God and sing praise to our Lord. It's, I'm, I'm so excited for that. Or it's like, if I go, I might have to have a conversation with that person. I think this peace from God can seem very elusive in the middle of strife and suffering. I've had conversations with some of you who don't believe that peace is as simple as Philippians 4 makes it out to be. I've tried that and it doesn't work. I've literally had that conversation. And I wonder if any of you can relate to that. That seems too simple, Matt. And I just want to gently challenge your thinking this morning if you are sitting there thinking, it's not as simple as that. I mean, you know the difference between simple and easy, right? It's not complicated. It just requires you doing hard things. Paul begins his letter to the Philippians. I think this is going to help us. This maybe give us some encouragement, some hope. Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by encouraging us to consider Christ's example. So let's, let's do that for a second. I, I believe, and this is true, I've checked this out with a few people, I believe that in his earthly ministry, Jesus himself had to follow this same pattern laid out by Paul to fight for peace and joy in his soul. When Jesus took on flesh and became man, he experienced every kind of trial and temptation that we do so that he can sympathize and empathize with us. Look at Hebrews 4. I'll put it up on the screen if you want to turn there. That's fine too. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Flip the page just a few verses later. During his earthly life, 
He offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. And after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. I wonder how many of us have a, this idea of Jesus, either one of, one of two things, um, and these are both influenced by movies and TV shows, probably more than anything, or paintings in medieval times, you know, paintings of Jesus, you know. Um, but either the idea of a very stoic, Zen master-like Jesus, who's just cool all the time with everything, except sinners and Pharisees, who is just like nothing actually phases him, and he's just always at peace, and he always speaks gently, and everything's just, okay, just, it's okay, you have little faith. Or we have this idea of smiling buddy Jesus, who's just kind of always joking, always laughing, and everything's fine, and, and I wonder if we can go to two extremes and either say nothing phases him, or he just kind of laughs stuff off. Do we have an image of Jesus that includes verse 7, during his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears? Plural, loud prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. Not just the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're familiar with. He, he, he was so stressed out, he sweated even drops of blood. Jesus suffered like we do in every way. He was tempted and tried in every way that we are. And he was acquainted with grief and sorrow just like we are. Let's read Isaiah 53. I'll put it up on the screen here. If you want to flip there, that's fine. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. And the chastisement that brought us peace. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. Notice in both of these passages, Hebrews 5 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah, a prophecy about who Jesus would be. And and Hebrews saying, yep, he was that. In Hebrews 5, it said his earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears. And because of that, he was perfected and became the source of eternal life. And in Isaiah 53, it says he was crushed, rejected. He was acquainted with sorrow and grief. And because of that, his chastisement brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. He becomes the Savior in both of these prophecies. Jesus suffered like we do. He was acquainted with grief and sorrow just like we are. And yet... He not only maintained that peace and joy we are promised, but he is himself the source of it. Both of these passages say he's the source of our peace. He's the source of our salvation. He went through what we went through. And it would be really tempting for me right now to say something like, see, Jesus did it, so you should too. But instead, I think what the message here is, Jesus did it and became our Savior. 
Jesus did it. He showed us the way to do it. Jesus did it, so we know it is possible. Jesus did it and went through it, so he knows what we're going through. And I think that message that Jesus knows, the the Heavenly Father knows what we're going through and still asks us to do this is very powerful. Jesus experienced all the things that cause us to doubt the possibility of peace, that cause us to doubt the possibility of reconciliation. He went through all of those things. He went through all the things that cause us to doubt the power of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer. It causes us to doubt the promise that Paul gives us in Philippians 4. But here's the difference. Jesus knew where to take his pain. He knew where to take his confusion to the Lord. He offered loud cry, loud prayers with tears. And he promises that if we do the same, our hearts and minds can be guarded by God, the God of peace, because of him. That because of him is really important. Hang on to that. Because of Jesus, we have some hope that when we pray, God's not just going to reject us like we deserve. I think the devil, the accuser, is constantly whispering to us, you don't deserve that peace. You don't deserve to have your prayers listened to. And by the way, he's not wrong. You don't deserve to have your prayers listened to. You don't deserve mercy and grace from the Lord. That's the definition of grace. The definition of mercy. That you don't deserve it. But because of Christ, we can have it. Because he paid the debt for all the things that would cause God to cast us out. I was talking with Brad earlier this week kind of about these things, Pastor Brad. Um, And he pointed out David's prayer in Psalm 139. Now, I don't know what every single one of your individual lives look like these days, but I think David, at the point he wrote Psalm 139, uh, had at least as much hardship and probably more hardship than we do now. He was being persecuted and prosecuted and chased and lived in caves and had a bunch of criminals and complainers with him. And he was inspired to record his prayer, this song, this psalm, for our encouragement. Here's a model of prayer. Here's a model of prayer at 139, the kind of prayer I think Philippians 4 is talking about. Let's look at just the first six verses. Look how close God is to his children. Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. That's a scary thought. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. And this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty. I'm unable to reach it. 
that, 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 little, that last verse echo a little bit of the peace of God which surpasses understanding? God knows you deeply. He knows you intimately. Look at that. He, he places his hand on you. He encircles you. God gets you better than you get yourself. He knows what's going on inside you. He knows that better than you know what's going on inside you. And this is the source of David's peace. God's got this. God's got this. Is that good news to you? Look, look at the highlighted words. Is this good news to you? Lord, you searched me. You know when I sit down and stand up. You understand my thoughts. You observe travels and rest. That's everything. You're aware of all my ways. You're aware of my ways. He's aware of you. He knows you. He searches you. He understands you. He observes you. He knows all about you. He encircles you. He puts his hand on you. Is that good news? This God of the universe, your creator, the one who made you, he sees every single step you take. He knows every single thought you think. He holds all reality in his hand and has power over all of it, and he cares for you deeply, you personally. He knows exactly how to direct your life for your good, and he wants you to follow that direction, and he calls us to repentance when we walk away from that direction in our stubborn, I'll do it myself, thank you very much, attitude. He calls you to trust him. He calls you to turn to him. He calls you to humble yourself and admit your need for him. He calls you to admit your finiteness. He calls you to admit your inabilities. He calls you to admit your frailties. Admit your weaknesses. Don't try to muscle up spiritually. I got this. I'm good. Thanks. I don't need any prayer. We're fine. Everything's fine. This is fine. I am okay with events as they're unfolding presently. That God, that powerful, infinite creator of the universe, he is so close to you. David goes on and he says he's inescapable. You can't flee from him, even if you try. Even if you were able to travel to other parts of reality, you couldn't get away from him. If you had a reality machine that could do, like, I don't know, was the reality stone from Marvel Cinematic Universe? You could just, like, alter space and time and place... Like, you could just, I'm going to decide that everything's different now. God would be, still be right there with you. Right there with you. I can't get away from you. That's good news. Because he has good things for you. When we are trapped in suffering, when we are trapped in sadness and sorrow, when we are trapped in strife, when his peace is elusive, he says, through Paul, don't worry about anything. 
through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I've often asked myself and God in those times, and I've been asked by some of you, if this is the case, if this promise is true, I've prayed, why am I still stuck in suffering? Why do I still feel stuck? Well, uh, in one of my morning devotions this week, I read Deuteronomy 8 in preparation for this sermon, sometimes new parts of scriptures pop out to me. It's a new year, by the way. I'm restarting back at the beginning of a read-through of the whole Bible in a year thing. And this passage, Deuteronomy 8 at the beginning, it stuck out to me, and I want to share it with you in answer to the question, why am I still stuck in suffering? And to set the stage with Deuteronomy 8. By the way, flip back there with me. Let's, let's go back. Let's, let's go to Deuteronomy 8. To set the stage, we've got to, re- we've got to remember that in the Exodus, which is the book before, uh, the two books <laughs> before Deuteronomy, God rescued the Israelites out of a life of harsh slavery to their masters in Egypt. Right? God, they, they were under harsh slavery with cruel masters, and God heard their cries, and he rescued them, and he brought them to the promised land, and it took 11 days for them to get to the border of the promised land. Quick, it was a quick trip. And there they decided, you know what? Long story short, I don't know if we can trust God to go in because there are giants there, and it is scary. The people did not trust that God would drive those scary things out. They wanted something they could see and touch, so they made a golden calf and said, this is our God, let's start worshiping that. And this resulted in God saying, all right, you don't trust me. Let's wander in the desert for 40 years. As discipline for their disobedience. That's what, well, hold on, Matt. I thought this was a God of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. He's also a God that knows how to teach us so that we grow up and we don't remain children, spiritual children. He has something bigger in mind than just your momentary comfort. So let's read. Deuteronomy comes right at the end of this 40-year wandering. Moses is summing up and reminding the people what just happened in the past 40 years, how God led them, how God provided for them that whole time that they were wandering, even when God was disciplining them and teaching them and growing them up in preparation for receiving the blessing of the promised land. He still provided every single one of their needs the whole time. So let's read Deuteronomy 8. Why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? Well, suffering's complicated, so that I can't go there right now. But let's keep that question in mind as we read Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Remember that the Lord your God led you the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what's in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. And by the way, when it says in the Old Testament... God is testing you so that he might know what's in your heart, whether or not he keep your commands. It's not like he doesn't know. 
He wants us to walk on our own. Not, he doesn't want to just carry us around in a little basket the whole, our whole life. He wants us to walk. Verse 3, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Sometimes God lets us go hungry to humble us. And then he gave you manna to eat, which your ancestors had not known. That's interesting, the manna thing. It's like simultaneously he's like feeding them, but also like, we don't know what this is. That's literally what manna means, right? (laughs) We don't know what this is. And they started complaining about that too. So it's like a double-edged, like he provided and also like took us out of our comfort zone. Why did he do that? That you had not known so that you might learn. What? So that you might learn. That, God, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Trust God's promises. Live by God's promises. For the sake of simplicity, let's, let's read verse 5. Keep in mind that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And if you've had a bad, abusive father, uh, this verse is hard. And that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind you wish you had, the father you know you needed that you didn't have. The reason it hurts that you had a bad dad is because you knew the kind you should have, and he wasn't. But God is the kind of dad you wish you had, and he's disciplining you the way you need to be. Deuteronomy, let's go down to verse 16. He's summing up the whole thing. He fed you with, in the wilderness with manna, which your ancestors had not known, in order to humble and test you. Why? So that in the end, he might cause you to prosper. That's the goal in God's mind. And he's willing to let you go hungry and take you through a desert for 40 years to make that happen. Because sometimes our stubbornness, our lack of humility, sometimes our disobedience, will not let us prosper in the end. The natural consequence of our actions is going to be lack of prospering, failure to thrive. So what does he do instead? He gives us circumstances that puts us in a position to be humble, to learn, to grow, so that in the end, we might prosper. We experience suffering in this life for lots of reasons. Some of those reasons have to do with our need to grow in humility and some of those our need to grow in trust for God. He grows us in these things by leading us and providing for us, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of suffering that comes externally from the sinful, broken world. He leads us in this way and promises us peace, even when it's other people's sin that are causing us that pain. God is always doing a million things at once with everything he's doing. So when you ask the question, why, God, are you doing this? He's like, I'll answer you in eternity. Because it's going to take that long to explain why I'm doing this thing. So how is Christ our Prince of Peace? How is Christ our Prince of Peace? Christ is our Prince of Peace because he shows us how he is providing for us and protecting us and guiding us even in the midst of our suffering. He shows us these things when we pray with thanksgiving 
and dwell on the pure and good and lovely things going on in our world around us that he is providing for us. That's why he tells us to dwell on whatever is good and lovely and pure and righteous because he says, look, I'm providing for you. I'm giving you manna when you're hungry. Pray to me because I'm going to give you perspective that you need. Pray to me because I'm going to help pull you out of this worry loop. Stop chewing that bone. It's already dissolved. I'm going to give you good food even if you don't know what it is. What is it? Well, that's what it's called. What is it? That's manna is the literal translation of manna. What is it? It's a, it's, a, it's a pun in the Pentateuch, right? It's a pun in the Old Testament. I love that. He shows us these things as we pray with thankfulness and to dwell on the pure, the good, and the lovely, and the, things going, the good things going on in our world that God is providing and protecting even in the midst of all the chaotic and hard things. And by the way, I think that's one, one message of revelation that we're going to start next week. I'm so excited. That Christ is our conqueror and our protector and our victor in the midst of chaos that looks like giant beasts coming out of the water and locusts coming across the land out of the abyss and this harlot on a red beast thing who's destroying all the saints. In the middle of that, Christ gives us peace and protection. So we go back to where we started. Read this familiar passage, maybe now with fresh eyes. Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything virtuous, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So let's, let's finish our time here by spending some time in prayer together. So would you pray with me? And as we do that, I'd like to offer some guidance. I want to spend some time first, just pray on your own or maybe together with your spouse or friends or whatever, put your heads together. Maybe you can pray quietly to yourself, addressing your creator, your heavenly father, or you can pray maybe out loud with a small group. We're just going to spend a little bit of time here in quiet prayer. And let me just, let me just as we do that, so heavenly father, we've, We come to you now. And brothers and sisters, just take a minute while we're in the presence of our Father who's listening. Would you just for a minute with me call to mind things going on in your life that you're thankful for. Let's just spend some time. Call to mind things that are going on in your life that you are thankful for. I'm going to ask the band to come up now actually as well. Things that you're thankful for. And now take, take a minute and let's dwell for a minute on where God is providing good things, where he is protecting, where he is leading you that you do know. Let's just think about this past week, this past month, things that he has come through for you on in, in very obvious and good ways. And, and thank, as we do that, thank your heavenly father for these things. Thank him for the things you're immediately thankful for. 
go a little deeper and think through the things he is providing and protecting and leading you in. Thank your heavenly father for those things. And while you're doing that, the things you're thankful for, dwelling on the things that he's come through, just think about over and over, just just replay them in your mind. Take a minute, and, and the things that you do feel the need for, that you feel like you're lacking, that you feel like God's not coming through on, would you just take a minute and ask God for those things? Present your request. Lord, help me here. Lord, would you give me wisdom here? Lord, would you please provide whatever? Or maybe it's just perspective. Wisdom, where you're having a hard time seeing how he's leading. And while we're doing that, maybe now we just, we just take a minute to call to mind the things you know are true. That's a, that's a big bucket. True things. Honorable things. Just and pure and lovely and commendable. So things like, I don't know, new babies. Things like when, when the government actually does things right for once. Things like, I don't know, your, your favorite team winning. And this isn't just simple, think happy thoughts. This is pure, lovely, good, commendable, a bride in her wedding dress. Work well done. Somebody, a, a carpenter making a really sweet, sweet table with the gifts God gave them. A beautiful song, maybe. What comes to mind when you think about the words true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent? Dwell on those things for a minute. And finally, finally, let's, let's end with this. So we just thank God. Lord, we thank you for your promise of peace. Lord, we ask you for help as we pursue peace. We, we ask you for help in trusting you. Lord, we do believe. Help us in our unbelief. And now let's just, brothers and sisters, let's just ask for that peace directly. So Lord, we need your help. Lord, we need your peace. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us. We thank you that you promise to lead us and guide us. We thank you that you promise us wisdom when we ask for it. Lord, we confess our sins, which are, are many, to you. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that you accomplished through Jesus by his blood shed on the cross in our place. And Lord, we just tell you now, help us. We say we trust you, help us to trust you more. We say we love you, help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.